This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi and is sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Big Y Pharmacy and Wellness Center, Bradford Eye Center, Coveris, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You're encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessio. On WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up to date medical information and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and welcome on this Saturday morning. And just a great opportunity over the next hour to chat with you about things going on in medicine, uh, things you may have heard about, and then we have a guest. Our guest today is going to be Dr. Stephen Scarangella, who's going to be in the studio with us. Dr. Scarangella is a board-certified orthopedic surgeon with board certification in hand surgery. And he's been on before. He's a very popular guest. And we want to talk a little bit about new innovations in hand surgery because, let's face it, the hand is such an important functional component to our lives so uh, we'll talk with him a little bit and be able to take all of your questions. Uh, just for the sake of efficiency, I'm going to give you the phone numbers now so you can start formulating your questions and call in. I'll give them periodically throughout the hour, but the phone numbers here are 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. That's 966-WTIC. If you're a little on the shy side, don't want to come on the air, you can email me live on the show at info at alessimd.com. This day in medicine, April 29, 1937, Dr. Fuller Albright first noted the condition osteitis fibrosa disseminata, basically a genetic disorder that was hormone-related. And it was interesting because it became known as Albright Syndrome, and that was back in 1937. You know, there have been a few things in the press that I wanted to take some time to talk about in this first segment. One of them was the issue of diet soda and drinking diet soda regularly left you at risk, at a higher risk for stroke and dementia. Now, that's another one of those things that has not really been proven. Uh, so it got caught on it got caught up in the popular uh, press but let's talk about it a little bit the study done looked at a little over 2800 people but it was a study that was done as an observational study what that means is it was just an observation it wasn't like somebody set out to compare diet soda to drinking water and what it said was those people who drank diet soda, one glass of diet soda every day, were three times more likely to have stroke or dementia. What it really tells us is that there may be a correlation, but no causation. So let me back up. We don't know that diet soda causes this problem, but it just so happened as part of the Framingham study that they made this observation. You also have to look at the participants. All the participants were white and typically never drank sugary drinks. So it was a very limited population. With that, what I'm saying is th there really is no clear conclusion 
to be drawn from this information. So if you drink diet soda once a day, I don't think that you should be panicking and saying, I better get rid of it or I'm going to have a stroke or dementia. But the other thing we also know is probably the best thing to drink is water. Uh, and and, and I'm, I'm always happy to see more and more people carrying their water bottles, drinking water. Uh, and unless they have it filled with diet soda, they should be fine. What we really try to stay away from are the sugary sodas uh, that really have that high glucose in it and start leading people to obesity and diabetes. Another thing I wanted to chat about is it was an article in the paper uh, talking about foreign-born doctors, something that we've spoken about on the show before uh, with immigration and foreign-born doctors. I mean, you have to think, there are over 200,000 immigrant doctors in the United States. Uh, and that's that's pretty interesting when you look at it uh, because that's a significant uh, number of the physicians because there are only 926,000 physicians in the country. That's it. So there are fewer than a million physicians in the country as of September 2016. In Connecticut, uh, we have 14,000 physicians. 30% of those 14,000 physicians are foreign-born. That means they came here on the visa program. Specifically, it was what's called a J-1 program, where you spend three years after your training. So you'll come here get a visa after you've graduated medical school in your country and you come over either on the J-1 or the H-1B visa system where you spend three years after your training in an underserved area with the hope that after that, meaning during that three-year period, uh, working in an underserved area, in an underserved area, we always used to think underserved area, oh, it must be at some Indian reservation out in the West. No, Hartford's an underserved area, folks, okay? Norwich is an underserved area. New London, Bridgeport, New Haven, okay? There are a lot of underserved areas in the state of Connecticut. So these folks finish their training, do their residency, fellowship, uh, have their full credentials, go out and spend three years in an underserved area with the hope of then obtaining what's called a green card. So in that three-year period, they're looking not only at the service you've given, but the quality of that service. Um, these are people who are not being convicted of felonies or crimes. Otherwise, they're not getting a green card. And then get a green card. And this is really made up for a lot of the shortcomings in our training system here in the United States. So I want people to be aware that uh, these foreign-born doctors are not just coming off some much maligned boat and practicing here. Um, they have gone through multiple steps and clearly have integrated themselves into the population and uh, become Americans. And and that's what our system has always been about. So we would like to keep that visa system in place because otherwise we're going to have 30% fewer doctors in Connecticut, and we're already short-staffed in Connecticut with only 14,000 physicians. Uh, the last thing I wanted to talk about was everybody kind of gets caught up in the idea of brain training. Everybody's heard about it. Um, there was Luminosity, who was recently sued by the Federal Trade Commission. So there are these programs online uh, that try to get you to feel that if you do the program, you can think better. 
So that could be the case, but there are a lot of other alternatives. I think luminosity was sued because uh, they made claims that you could avoid dementia or whatever, and, th- and that's not been the case. Uh, professional football players, I think Tom Brady said he did it, and uh, uh, Matt Ryan said they did it to remain sharp, things like that. There are a lot of ways of doing that. You don't necessarily need to invest in a computer program or an app to do that. So, again, these brain training programs, some of them you have to actually go to a studio and and perform certain tasks. There are a lot of ways of doing that. What can be worthwhile is really uh, spending some time with a cognitive specialist or uh, looking into it and and researching it a little bit. Uh, But we've found and we've talked to people on this program, you know, a lot of learning a new skill, learning a new language, uh, learning how to type even something like that, something that incorporates memorization and physical skill uh, is martial arts. Another thing, again, great for keeping the brain young and peaking your ability to retain information. So uh, things that I think we should bear in mind when trying to remain young and uh, more acute mentally. We're going to take a short break. Then we're going to be back with our guest, Dr. Stephen Scarangella. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. Tonight at the Mohegan Sun. You may want to get down there because tonight is the last home game for our lacrosse team. Uh, that is uh, playing. Uh, this is the Black Wolves. So, again, um, looking forward to that. Uh, that game is tonight. And hopefully, if they get a win, they uh, get into the playoffs. So, should be a super experience uh, for them. And if you're down there, as always, there's so much going on at the Mohegan Sun. Our guest here in the studio is Dr. Stephen Scarangella. Uh, who is an orthopedic hand surgeon practicing in Willimantic primarily, and that's where his office is. Phone number there, 860-456-3997. Steve, welcome back to the show. Tony, thanks for having me. Uh, so let's talk, because there's always a lot going on with the hand. Uh, we, we're here all the time. I mean, just in passing, people all the time are having trouble with their hand. Uh, and... It becomes much more catastrophic because the hand is so – what What has made the hand so important? I mean in terms of someone's not only ability to perform their activities of daily living, it's almost part of your identity. Yeah, no, I think obviously it's important in, in everything that we do and, and uh, uh, the functions that we carry out. And I think uh, you know, certainly I think what we're seeing now a lot in society is that we're using our hands really more and more uh, – when you think about it, uh, between computers and, and uh, cell phones and uh, different things that were that are fairly hand intensive, um, we, we tend to use our hands a lot day to day, maybe more so than in the past. It, has it become? Yeah, and you said maybe more so in the past because technology has taken over. So people are keyboarding. I mean, used to be keyboarding uh, when I was young was you know basically learning how to type. Now it is really become an essential part of what we do. Does that add a lot to these hand problems? I think so. Uh, I think anything that's re- you know where you're using your hands uh, uh, repetitively, uh, and in some cases, uh, w- w- when we say repetitively, it could be eight hours straight uh, doing some uh, fairly repetitive activities with your hands. 
um, it, it puts a stress on them, I think, uh, that get, certainly that we see that can lead into uh, uh, various issues. Well, we see patients all the time who say, well, that's the hand I use the mouse with. Is, is the mouse – some? I mean, I'm just looking at the counter here. We have two different mice, I guess you could use. Uh, but they, they all seem to have some ergonomic design. Has that helped at all? Or is the mouse our enemy rather than our friend? Well, it can be, I think, but but I think there are uh, ways to, uh, to kind of look at that to sort of to steer out of trouble. Uh, there certainly are ergonomic uh, equipment that you can get uh, with keyboarding, and uh, and certainly one of the things I always uh, uh, try to remind people of is to you know take a break here and there. Uh, you know, don't be constantly on it. If you are, you know, just take a break for you know even just a few minutes just to give your hands a rest uh, so that you're not loading them in a continuous uh, fashion. Yeah. So, I guess. Let's talk about the repetitive stuff because I always find it interesting. You and I are both seeing a lot more patients who are the so-called gamers, uh, kind of a new term, uh, in, and that's uh, people who pay, play these computerized games and can really play for hours and hours and hours uh, to the point where, I mean, there's a lot of, story, a lot of inter- interesting information regarding the addictive nature of these things. But so – do you see it more in these people who are playing these games for long periods of time? Uh, definitely, yeah. And I have seen some uh, some patients that come in with some rather uh, you know fairly extreme complaints in terms of pain and, and dysfunction in their hands. And you know, and then when you start to kind of tease it out a little bit, you find out that they are you know on these games you know for hours and hours, just as you mentioned. And uh, and and you know that kind of activity can definitely bring on some issues and problems. Uh, Fortunately, most of the time, if you can sort of get again a little bit of a modification in terms of how they're managing this and and taking some breaks and not being on this so uh, diligently, you can sometimes avoid uh, uh, problems and resolve things. Uh, we're chatting today with Dr. Stephen Scarangella, who's an orthopedic surgeon and specializing in the hand. The phone numbers here eight six zero five two two nine eight four two and one eight hundred nine six six nine eight four two. Steve. It, is there a particular finger that – so, for example, we always think, well, you know, we have an opposable thumb, and the thumb is fairly complex. Is that the finger that is most often injured or most often you have to direct a lot of attention to surgically? Well, certainly the thumb has a, a few different conditions that can, can uh, lead to some trouble, uh, uh, some of which are easy to deal with and, and some are a little bit more complex. Uh, tendonitis issues, uh, certainly that you can get in all of the digits, uh, but certainly in the thumb uh, uh, trigger finger type of situation can certainly come about. And that's fortunately something that's fairly simple to resolve, even though the symptoms can be uh, rather severe at times. Um, there is another type of tendonitis called a de Quervain's tenosynovitis, uh, uh, which does involve the thumb uh, extensor and abductor tendons. And again, usually a fairly simple thing to resolve. Uh, the m- more complicated problem can be the uh, basilar arthritis or CMC arthritis of the thumb, which is also fairly common and can cause a fair amount of trouble, um, arthritis at the thumb base joint. And uh, when that does get to be severe, uh, that, that joint's involved with pinching activities, so unscrewing a jar, turning a key, uh, even those simple activities can become quite painful. Again, there are solutions for that. Uh, they are a little bit more complex. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about the solutions. Uh, so for a simple decor veins, uh, is it enough? Is physical therapy, non-steroidals, is that usually enough to promote improvement in in 
kind of the more common run-of-the-mill decrovanes tendonitis? Certainly in certain cases, in particular, if you catch it on the early uh, part of the curve, uh, certainly therapy, splinting, um, NSAIDs, all of that can, can resolve it. Uh, in particular, if you can, uh, again, catch it early and also perhaps uh, identify some type of a repetitive activity or something that might be bringing it on and adjust that behavior. Um, so, uh, again, early in the game uh, certainly can be helpful. Uh, also, uh, in, in particular with Decrovane's tenosynovitis, a corticosteroid injection 50% of the time can cure it. So, uh, and corticosteroid injections for Decrovane's can be very effective as well. That often? I, I didn't realize it was going to be 50%. Yeah, and then uh, again, even if uh, the one anatomical variation that can uh, prevent that from being a cure sometimes is they, uh, there are two tendons involved, the abductor and the uh, short extensor, and uh, 25% of people will have a partition or a, a separation between those two tendons, and those are the ones that tend to end up uh, usually heading, up, heading toward surgery. Uh, you know, Steve, we don't usually do it, but let's, uh, we're going to try and grab a question. Um, we have uh, Tex on the line uh, from Plainville. Hello, it's Dr. Alessi. You're on. How you doing? All right, pretty good. Okay, so um, good morning. And I listen to you guys every weekend. It's really interesting to me, but you're touching on something that I have a personal issue with. Um, I'm a carpenter painter. I've been okay. doing this for years. I'm sure you've heard this before, but I got attacked about nine years ago, and um, they addressed the nervous, nervous issues, but they did not address my wrist with broken. And now, since the past probably eight years, I've had like – they say I have like seven or eight dead bones in my corporal zone in my left wrist. Uh, they show up like milky white in the x-ray. Um, and Dr. Radner, my doctor said that I need surgery. He would take out some of those bones and fuse them together, but I'm left-handed, and that's how I make my living. But it's getting more and more painful. Am I going to lead myself to more problems, or is it just going to be painful and basically stay like it is? Or do you not know without actually looking at it, obviously? This is pretty interesting because we're talking about uh, basically aseptic necrosis, right? Uh, so, the carpal sound, bones? Sounds like it, yes. I think, um, you know, I think in terms of, uh, again, it'd be uh, difficult to say without looking at your x-rays and seeing how bad things are, but it sounds like the surgery that's being proposed for you typically is a surgery that's usually, you know, for end-stage arthritis. Um, you know, and again, that typically if it's end-stage arthritis that you have, um, it probably won't change your treatment, you know, down the road. Uh, the one thing you want to be careful of is that you're not getting increasing deformity over time that might make uh, a surgical correct correction a bit more challenging. So uh, if you are going to hold off, probably a good idea to just check periodically with your surgeon and, and, and make sure things aren't heading uh, in the wrong direction. Will he be functionally impaired? In other words, as a painter or someone who uses this as his dominant hand, we're always concerned, and I understand Texas' uh, feeling is, will he be functionally impaired typically by, by fusing those bones? So there are kind of two sides to it. One is how bad are you now or how bad are you prior to surgery? Sometimes the arthritis gets so bad that you're really dysfunctional because of the pain. Uh, you tend to lose strength. That's, that's the issue I have now is that it radiates up to my shoulder. I, I get severe cramps. Like at the, Towards the end of my days, I get severe cramping and mus muscular pain. But, again, that is my concern. It's what if I do this surgery, I can't reverse it, and now I have a – a hand that I can't make a living with, and that's my, I'm a sole provider of my for my family. So, I'm, and my doctor, his exact words to me are when I've seen him the past couple of times. You know, he's pushing, pushing for the surgery, but his his exact words are, 
it's a very impressive X-ray. You know, I really, I, I don't, I don't see how you're doing it. It's very impressive X-ray, and he just leans back in his chair and like lifts his eyebrows, like you, you need to do the surgery. But I just can't see taking that chance. And then what do I do? You know, then what happens if there's something isn't correct or I can't utilize my my skills? I'm I'm right. 45 years old. I, I'm stuck with what I do for a living. You know? Yeah. No. I I completely hear you. I mean, if he could tough it out, is he going to do any more harm? Yeah, I think, again, without seeing the x-rays, it's hard to be exact. But what I would say to you, again, from what you're describing, it sounds like the procedure that's being proposed is usually for an end-stage arthritic yeah. issue. So I think yeah. in that setting, um, if you are going to hold off, and I do have patients that are in the same situation, and we kind of tend to follow it out and say, well, all right, you know, a periodic cortisone injection or something to kind of get you through, and, and let's see where it takes you. But uh, the one thing I would say is just Definitely periodically check in with your surgeon and, and keep an eye on things and make sure they're not uh, increasing in terms of your Okay. Hey, Tex, thanks for listening and thanks for calling in, man. Thank you for your advice. I appreciate it, you take guys. Care. Have a good day. All right. We're going to take a short break and then we're going to get back with more of the questions uh, coming in for Dr. Scarangella. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and we are chatting today with my colleague, Dr. Stephen Scarangella, about hand surgery and problems with the hand. We were talking a lot about the thumb and uh, had a question uh, really from Tex about fusion of the wrist and things like that. Can you talk, explain to people what a fusion is and when you end up having to do that for someone? So, yes, yeah, certainly fusions are sort of end-stage operations, usually when the arthritis has just gotten so bad that there's not anything lesser that you can do. Um, the, the wrist joint's complicated in the sense that uh, you have two forearm bones, your radius and your ulna, and then on the other side of those forearm bones are, are the, uh, the small uh, carpal uh, bones in the wrist, uh, of which there are several divided into two uh, separate joints. So your wrist joint's actually made up of two separate joints, uh, one uh, joint between the uh, proximal carpal row or the front row and the forearm bones, and then there's another row of carpal bones on the other side of those that make another side of your wrist joint. Um, when you fuse bones together, usually what you have are, are bones that have worn out so much that the cartilage is gone and it's just uh, really tremendously painful or the bone-on-bone -bone type of arthritis. Um, so a lot of times there's not much motion between those bones, but the motion that is there is quite painful. When you fuse them together, what you're doing is uh, actually taking two bones uh, that are moving a little on each other and causing pain and fusing them together to turn it really into one bone or one surface. Uh, that gets rid of that little micro motion that's causing the pain, so it'll eliminate whatever motion is there, but it does eliminate the pain at the same time. When talking about that, so... End-stage arthritis, we're usually talking about older patients. Uh, are a lot of your patients older? I mean, do you see a lot of that now that everybody is living longer? Or are you seeing more folks kind of like techs who, you know, repetitively use their hands in a physical way uh, in terms of people who are needing surgical intervention or some um, more dramatic repair? Well, a little bit of both, but I do think we're seeing more on the younger uh, side of things because I think uh, older patients tend to be able to manage around uh, some of these arthritic issues uh, typically a little better. A lot of times, again, when they're older, their lifestyles are such that they're not loading uh, the wrists and hands as much. 
And a lot of times we can kind of manage through some of those problems a little bit more easily conservatively. But uh, someone, as in Texas situation, who's doing a very high-stress, high-physical, high-skilled job at a young age and has uh, what sounds like some advanced arthritis, uh, they're going to have a lot more trouble and a lot more pain. So we tend to see those patients a little more often and, and sometimes need to intervene uh, with them uh, uh, a bit more as well. Uh, we'd be remiss without talking a little bit about carpal tunnel and uh, the approaches to carpal tunnel. Everybody's pretty familiar with it. Maybe kind of recap what is carpal tunnel syndrome and what are some of the treatments for it? We're familiar with the surgical treatments, but how about some of the non-surgical treatments? Uh, well, certainly, uh, you know, the, ho- the hallmark for, for carpal tunnel treatment is certainly just basic splinting and, and again, also trying to identify nowadays is there a specific activity or something repetitive that you're doing that might be exacerbating it or, or even bringing it on? Uh, but certainly night splinting, uh, certainly, as you know, can be a very uh, uh, effective treatment, Tony, early on. Uh, how about injections into the wrist? I, I hear more and more about people doing it. Are they effective? Is it a more of a temporizing um, procedure to inject steroid into the carpal tunnel? Uh, I think it can be helpful if you have a mild uh, case and it's early in the onset of it. It's also uh, sometimes very helpful uh, diagnostically to try to sort it out a bit. If you've got a patient that's uh, maybe got uh, a multiple um, neurological uh, uh, series of problems, such as a cervical radiculopathy or pinched nerve in the neck or a diabetic peripheral neuropathy, and there may be some underlying carpal tunnel syndrome, uh, injecting that carpal tunnel uh, can sometimes tease out a little bit. Is there a predominant uh, problem with the carpal tunnel that might benefit from surgery. Uh, let's grab a question. We have Vince from Torrington on the line. Vince, welcome to the show. Hi, hi. Thank you, doctor. Um, I don't really have a question, but <clears throat> I heard a listener earlier talking about his wrist. And I heard you mention fusion. I'm a patient who's had major hand and wrist surgery um, from a doctor. I don't know whether I can give his name, but he used sure. coral. He used coral on my hand about 30 years ago, and they were originally a doctor told me to. You should have this fused, blah, 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 and that's the best way to go. However, the doctor, being a professional, said there's a man in New Haven. You should go and see him. I did. Hey, 30 years later, and he he said, I'll give you 93% of your wrist back, and he did. And I'm very grateful that I went through that that surgery, my hand. You mentioned the thumb. I had a year, maybe a year and a half of physical therapy, and I'm grateful that I went through it. I had three scars on my hand. One's a major scar on my wrist, but he did give me my hand back as he said he would. And I heard someone on your show talking about bones and cartilage. I had a lot of surgery done. And I'm grateful I went through it and did not have it fused. That's all I really wanted to say. Um, okay. Years, the only problem that I had years after was not with the surgery. It was not with the coral. But being in the hospital for so long, somehow I, I, I contacted whatever the uh, disease that was in the hospital was. Sure. And uh, I developed osteomyelitis, <clears throat> which happened to me, quote, every five years, whether it be four and a half or five and a half years, I was always wound up isolated in a hospital. My hand would blow up. They would uh, relieve the pressure from my hand. And today, doctor, I'd have to say that it's been almost nine years that I have not been to a hospital with my with osteomyelitis, but I do it again. Oh, I well, great. Again. And at the time, the doctor said, this is pretty much experimental, but he just got out of school. He can do it. And I took his word for it. Well, thanks for that endorsement. Let's talk a little bit more about it. Thanks for the call, Vince. Thank you. Coral? 
Yeah, I'm not sure that uh, I understand exactly what, what he had done, but I, what I will say is, again, the one nice thing about the hand and wrist is it's a, a, typically a non-weight-bearing joint, unlike your foot, ankle, and knee and hip. Um, so a lot of times we do try to uh, work around. These fusions are really sort of last resort-type procedures. Um, you know, one technique that I tend to use a lot is arthroscopy, and, and uh even with uh, some advanced arthritic issues, sometimes you can get a little lucky and do some less invasive approaches uh, to alleviate some discomfort without, you know, having to go to the fusion operation. Because again, uh, the loss of function in there can be significant. So, Steve, you're putting a scope into the wrist or the hand? Uh, in the wrist, typically. Um, yeah, arthroscopic uh, surgery, as in with other joints, sure. uh, we tend to use that uh, as a fairly you know, minimally invasive approach to try to manage uh, through things. And sometimes we can get a little lucky with the hand and wrist just because, again, it's a non-weight-bearing joint, and sometimes we can really uh, effectively manage some of these arthritic issues and uh, and certainly not burn any bridges and still be able to do the end-stage end procedures if it fails. When you go in with the scope, are you shaving down the bone? Is that what you're taking off some of the excess bone that's formed? You can do several things. You can sometimes clean out inflammatory tissue. Sometimes there'll be partially torn ligaments. Um, again, sometimes I've bumped into some loose bodies where a piece of cartilage will, will break off and get caught in the joint and cause some difficulty. You can shave down parts of the bone to take off some of the pressure off. So there's a variety of things you can do uh, to, to try to manage uh, issues if it's not too far gone. Uh, and again, the nice thing about it is you, you're doing things in a fairly less invasive approach and you're not burning any bridges. So if for some reason it works for a while but, but breaks down or, or doesn't work, you still have the other reconstructive options available. We're chatting today with Dr. Steven Scarangel about some of the common conditions affecting uh, the hand. The phone numbers here are 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. In this final segment, we're going to talk a little bit about the trigger finger. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and we're talking about the human hand with Dr. Stephen Scarangella. Um, for those of you who wish to contact Dr. Scarangella, his practice is Connecticut Orthopedic and Hand Surgery at 860 860- Four five six three nine nine seven. I'm going to grab another question. We have uh, Carol on the line from Berlin. Uh, Carol, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. I have a question uh, on my left palm, below, say the ring finger, going towards the small finger. An area, maybe about a half an inch, it feels hard. It doesn't hurt. Is there anything I ought to do about that? Well, that was perfect because that's the topic we wanted to talk about in this segment, and that is changes in the tendon and trigger fingers and things like that. So, Steve, carry carry on. <laughs> so um, definitely a good idea to get it checked out just to be sure, uh, but what it sounds like it might be is something called Dupuytren's disease, uh, which which could present with that type of a uh, an appearance. And what happens with that is the, the tendons that flex your fingers have a covering over them, sort of like a banana, pe banana peel on a banana. That covering in certain patients will scar down and become inflamed and can create, almost feels like an extra bump or a tendon uh, in that, and, and most commonly in that area that you're describing. Uh, typically, when it first happens, you may have some discomfort and inflammation and pain with it, uh, but the majority of the time it's usually painless and just kind of a... a 
uh, an unusual feeling or looking uh, bump uh, in your hand. Uh, so that may be what it is, but, but certainly a good idea probably just to get it checked out just to be on the safe side. Okay, thank you very much. All right, thanks for the call. Bye-bye now. So you mentioned Dupuytren's contractures. Um, can you talk a little bit more about what you do? I mean, some of these people have it. It, it becomes quite severe, um, and, and particularly in the fourth and fifth digits uh, more than anything. What are some of the things you do for that contracture, and how does that differ from when you're starting to see trigger finger? So uh, the, the Dupuytren's contracture, typically, uh, uh, again, a lot of times we can just observe and watch it if it's not creating significant contractures, but if it does start to... Uh, uh, and that's what Dupuytrens will do. It'll start out as this sort of painless appearing uh, uh, deformity or bump, um, which doesn't cause any real trouble in most of the time. Uh, but what it can do is to start gradually, usually, uh, pulling the finger down so you notice that you can't really straighten your finger quite as well anymore. And sometimes that will can progress to a degree. Um, always a good idea to get it looked at and dealt with uh, earlier if possible um, one thing we do tend to see with patients with Dupuytrens is you can kind of work around the Dupuytrens and accommodate for these contractures quite well because uh, typically it limits your straightening but not your flexing of your fingers so you can kind of work with it. So some people will wait a long time before they get it dealt with. Uh, but there are different things, uh, options for treatment. Uh, surgery certainly uh, still probably our, our hallmark treatment, but there is a, a material called Zyaflex that we use, which is an injectable material uh, 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 for Dupuytrens, which I think I probably first talked about with you, Tony, on oh, your yeah. show a, a few years back. Um, and we do use that as a treatment option. It's an injectable material that dissolves the uh, contracture. And with contractures that uh, have anatomy that's favorable for that, that's an office procedure where you just come in and get a shot of that into the uh, area that's contracted. A couple of days later, you come back and we kind of numb it up and straighten your finger. Uh, who do you see it mostly in? Uh, you know, a variety, variety of people, but we tend to see uh, people with Eastern European heritage uh, uh, that tend to have it. Uh, most of the time, it's people that are usually over uh, in the 40 to 50-year-old range or, or, or a bit older. Um, but you can certainly see it in patients that are younger as well. What are some of the things we're starting to see coming down the pike in relation to hand surgery? Uh, you know, we've we've always heard about... Uh, reattachment and uh, are we making a lot of progress is that a more common procedure now reattaching a limb or reattaching a hand which i would think would be even harder to do yeah i think uh certainly the the microsurgical uh techniques and and uh uh certainly the the ability to try to do these things are becoming uh uh certainly better and better um i do think uh you know these can be obviously quite devastating injuries and and uh, uh very challenging reconstructive uh options but uh i think those types of uh replantations and things that are happening are are certainly still around and and uh and really dramatically helpful when they work you know we we hear a lot about stem cells and scaffolding of joints and things like that is that going on in the hand as well uh, to a degree, yes. Again, trying to uh, regenerate cartilage and, and do these types of things are, are things that we're trying to do, but you know, still not uh, as far along as you'd certainly like to be with that to be able to offer that as certainly a frontline type of treatment. Is most of your work outpatient you know, in terms of surgery? I mean, I still remember when everything was done inpatient, inpatient, inpatient. So is most hand surgery obviously the uh, not when it's acutely traumatic or, or whatever, but is most of it done in, in an outpatient center? Absolutely, yeah. The vast majority of uh, I, things, it's, it's hard for me to even think of a patient that I would admit other than someone, as you outlined, that, that has some type of complex traumatic injury. 
One of the common questions I always get, and I know it's variable, but on average, someone who has carpal tunnel surgery typically is somebody who's very active, uh, working. How long are they typically out for? I mean, if it were pretty straightforward, if there is such a thing as straightforward. Yeah, you know, I would say depends again on your activity levels. If you're doing, you know, certainly a, a fairly uh, uh, low key activity in terms of your your activities that aren't uh, physical with your hand, you can certainly resume a lot of those types of activities immediately. Um, for heavy use with your hand and, and certainly having it back to full strength, you know, we usually look at about an average of uh, four to six weeks along those lines. And it can take even longer sometimes to get your grip strength all the way back. But usually at the four to six week mark uh, and mostly at the four week mark, typically, um, you should be strong enough to, to be able to, to do most things most of the time. Things people should do to try to avoid carpal tunnel. So in other words, I mean, there's one thing when when you get it, but is there something people should do modifying their keyboard? We talked a little bit about ergonomics. Is there something someone could do, especially if there's a family history? I mean, we often see it running in families. Is there something somebody should do in order to try and avoid um, having to deal with the numbness and pain? Well, I think, again, uh, I would uh, try to identify if there's some type of repetitive activity that you're doing that you can uh, – change the change the behavior on a little bit particularly anything that involves a lot of extreme wrist flexion or wrist extension it's usually in the extended and flex position in your wrist that you have the maximum stress and pressure on the carpal tunnel so if you're doing something like that fairly repetitively try to kind of break that up a little bit the other thing i think that's uh, i found helpful and uh, is to always be careful uh, if you're using any type of an impact tool a power tool um anything along those lines where you're putting a lot of vibration or a lot of direct pressure in the palm, uh, try to use some type of padding or some type of glove, uh, which will cushion that carpal tunnel and try to avoid the damage there. Are there particular athletes who are more prone um, to carpal tunnel based on their sport? Uh, Again, I think um, any athlete can get it for sure, but I think uh, you tend to see it a a little bit more commonly in patients that are using their wrists. uh, So racket sports. Racket sports, uh, you know, certainly golfing, um, you know, baseball to some degree, uh, just on the pitching hand for sure and the throwing hand. Steve, I want to thank you once again for spending time with us uh, here. Uh, we've been chatting with Dr. Stephen Scarangella, who is a board-certified orthopedic and hand surgeon. He can be reached at 860-456-3997. His principal office is in Willimantic, uh, but uh, – provides outpatient services at a lot of different facilities as well. Steve, thanks again for everything you do. Oh, Tony, thank you for having me again. Many thanks to our studio producer, Mike Oko's on the board, Jeff Chandler and Sadie Bryder in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. So next week, we're going to be chatting a little bit about uh, my activities this past week. I was at the American Academy of Neurology where we heard a lot. We had I did some interviews. Uh, we spoke a lot about physician burnout, uh, which has become a huge issue in medicine, um, particularly in certain specialties. And uh, surprisingly, uh, it's not just neurology that's become the focus of this and many of the reasons why physicians burn out. And again, uh, it was funny because I learned a lot in the sense that I always thought it was, uh, you know, overwhelmingly sad, overwhelming sadness over the types of patients you had to treat. Uh, and that's not been the case. The real case of burnout has come with the burden of desk medicine 
for lack of a better term, where you're filling out forms and trying to, you know, enter things into these uh, really tedious electronic health records. So we're going to chat about physician burnout. We're going to go over some interviews I did next week on Healthy Rounds. Next up on WT is Garden Talk with Len. Please remember to help save lives by becoming an organ, eye, and tissue donor. You can go to registerme.org. And I hope everybody had a great time at the walk run for life choice um, here in Connecticut. Until next week, please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi and is sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Big Y Pharmacy and Wellness Center, Ratchford Eye Center, Coveris, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC, News Talk 1080, and WTIC.com. Until then, stay well.